Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Welcome to New Story. Thank you for being here with us today. Or if you're online with us, thank you for being here. I imagine a number of people who would normally even be here with us are probably online due to the fact that it is quite cold outside today. Uh, I was just saying to Aaron that sometimes schools would probably even cancel for as cold as it was today or close school because it's it's really cold. I went outside this morning and I was like, it is, it's cold. My car said it was four degrees. I don't know if it's actually four degrees, but that's what my car said. So it's freezing. So if you're somebody who watches from out of state, Normally, I would brag to you about how great Buffalo is, but today, um, you know, you might be having some better weather than us right now, so I, I hope that you're enjoying that. But thank you all so much for being here. Uh, this is a, an exciting time for us. We are in a series called The Father, and I initially was going to start off this year with a series on the Holy Spirit, and I pushed that back to, to, to March because I said to myself, you know, or maybe it was God speaking this to me, if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, we should also talk about the Father and the Son and just, you know, do a series on the Father and do a series on the Son and then do a series on the Holy Spirit so that we can cover all the Trinity and we're not just talking about one aspect of the Trinity. And so I want to give you a brief overview of this series to kind of give you an understanding for what we're going to be doing this week and next week with with these messages in the Father. Uh, So last week we talked about how God is a deeply relational God and God desires for humanity to know him. This week and next week, we're going to be tackling a really difficult and complex topic of some of the violent portraits of God that we see in the Old Testament. And then in the last week, we're actually going to be seeing who God declares himself to be and how he follows through with that in the Old Testament. And so there's going to be a full circle with this series. But this this week and next week, I really felt it was necessary to, to have a discussion about some of the the violent portraits of God that we see in the Old Testament, because as I talk to people who are maybe uh, on the fringe of considering church but not in church or have kind of walked away from church, I, I, I talk to people a lot who are in that space and season of life, and they typically have some objections or things they're wrestling with with faith. And one of the things that typically comes up is some of the content and the portraits of God that we see in the Old Testament. And so we've made a decision as a church that we are not going to run from difficult topics like this one, that we are going to engage these topics, and we also aren't always going to give answers that everybody has been giving for the past however many years. But we are going to look at these uh, concepts with fresh eyes and say, hey, what is God doing here? What is God saying here? And what exactly, how, how do we reconcile all of these pieces? And so this week and next week, just so everybody knows, is really one message. But I don't want to have you here all afternoon, and we also have a 10.30 service to get to as well. So I'm going to kind of abruptly end this message today. It's going to be like a cliffhanger, and then we are going to finish the message next week, just so everybody knows. But we're going to be engaging this this complex topic, and for this, I am going to sit down for a bit, because otherwise I'll just start talking really, really fast, and you're like, you're covering a lot of content this morning, and you're talking really fast, and that's one of my weaknesses as a communicator sometimes. I start talking really, really fast, and I get excited about something. And then people are like, what did he just say? And I, I'll do that. And so I, I want to make sure that we, we speak, I speak clearly with this um, because this is a difficult issue that, that people wrestle with. But, you know, I, I did think to myself, how fitting is it for us to be talking about God's violence after the Buffalo Bills just violently destroyed the New England Patriots last night? 
I mean, to be honest, it really wasn't that violent. It was precision and accuracy and just real football destroying what looked like college-level football playing against us last night. I mean, more touchdowns than incompletions for Josh Allen last night. Oh, come on. I mean, it was so nice because I was saying to myself, this game starts at 8.15, and I want to be well-rested for church tomorrow. I was late into the third quarter, and I said, you know what? We are so in control of this game. If I fall asleep, it's not that big of a deal because you know what? I know that we are going to win. We are that good right now. It was, it was a great night. But anyways, so he, here, here's kind of the premise. Here's where we're starting for this. So Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, 9, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so we, we live in a time where, hey, we're all good with Jesus, following Jesus, we love Jesus, but sometimes it seems as if there's a bit of a disconnect between who Jesus is and who the Father is, specifically when we see some of the actions from the Father in the Old Testament. And so people start asking, okay, I can't seem to reconcile this. What's going on here? I don't fully understand this. And for those of you who might be thinking, oh, this is really not that big of a deal. Why do we have to talk about this? Well, the Barna Group, which is a Christian study group that's been, uh, that's been uh, a well-respected group in Christianity for years now, in 2016, they completed a massive survey of the Bible. So this is already six years old. So the numbers I'm about to share with you, I bet have increased by now. Um, in, in 2016, what they found was is that 27% of non-Christian millennials believe that the Bible is a dangerous book. That's 27%. That's That's... If I'm doing my math, I'm not going to math. That's one in four, correct? That's one in four. 27% of non-Christian millennials believe that the Bible is a dangerous book. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that if we just move along as if that is not a thing and we just keep doing what we were doing and act like that's not an issue to address, I don't think that's going to make things better. I think we need to step into the issues and engage the issues. What the Barna study found as well was that in 2011, 10% of Americans in 2011 identified as Bible skeptics. Then they saw the fastest increase of that number ever in American history when it went in 2011 to, from 10% of Americans to 2016, 22% of Americans identified as Bible skeptics. And this was six years ago. I bet through the pandemic and through everything that's happened since, those numbers have continued to increase. And so I believe that we as a church have a responsibility to take difficult issues like this and engage these issues because one of the reasons that many people believe the Bible is a dangerous book is because of some of the ways people have used and interpreted the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. So we need to engage this. We need to talk about this. And for those of you who are like, man, I, I prefer when I come to a new story and, and it's inspirational and it's exciting, I'll give you just a little piece of, of excitement this morning so that, you can, so that you can get your fix. And then we'll jump back into this. And, and guess what? In the following weeks, we'll be back to normal. But we have to stop and talk about this. We're not going to run from these issues. But here's your little piece of inspiration for this morning. Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that you could have life. He paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin so that we could have eternal life. He came back from the grave, rescuing us, giving us, giving us salvation in him and in him, we can have eternal life. That's your inspiration this morning. And if you say yes to Jesus, you can have eternal life in him. There's your inspiration for the morning, okay? Let's jump down into this. So basically, this is part one. We are going to dig a giant hole this morning. We are going to jump into the hole, and we are not going to come back out of the hole until next week. Everybody good with that? All right, let's do this. So 
Some people, some people are saying, are, they're already thinking to themselves, okay, I get that people are Bible skeptics, blah, 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 blah. But you know what, Scott? God's violence in the Old Testament, it's really not that bad. People are just exaggerating it. People are just really exaggerating it. They're making it something that it's not. It's just really not that bad. Okay, well, according to biblical scholar Raymond Schwager, there are over a thousand times where God encourages or gives a demand for violent activities or bloody activities in the Old Testament, over a thousand times. Let me just give you a handful, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 2. Then Sihon, with all of his people, came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz. The Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. So Lord our God delivered these people to us, and we destroyed everyone, men, women, and children. We left no survivor. Deuteronomy chapter 20, look at this one. Uh, he says, only, only the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you is in, as an inheritance. You shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, and the Jebusite, and the Lord your God has commanded you. So you shall utterly destroy them, all these people. Uh, here's another one. We'll take a look here. This is Numbers chapter 31. This is in regards to Midian. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. So kill all the men, women, and children, guys. Go for it. But then all the virgins, you can keep them for yourself. Well, that's a little, what, what exactly is going on there? Or this in Joshua chapter 6. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. They destroyed everything. And there are countless accounts of, of war, war violence occurring in the Old Testament. But there are even some things, as I began reading and researching, that I began to see for myself that I was like, I didn't know that was there either. So there are times that on the surface, it appears as if God is encouraging, if you're watching with your kids right now online, you may want to have them do the earmuffs thing, okay? So earmuffs, there's your warning, go for it. Okay, so it appears as if there are times in the Old Testament where God encourages parents to cannibalize their children. You're like, what? Where's that at? Here we go, Leviticus chapter 26. Yet in spite of this, if you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. So what exactly is going on there? There are more occurrences of this as well. Here's another one in Jeremiah 19.9. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and in the distresses which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. So what's going on here? Why is this happening? Look at this one in Hosea chapter 13. It's a consequence for Samaria rebelling against God. God says, Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones, some translations say their babies, will be dashed into pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. 
So as a result of not obeying me, as a result of of going against me, their little ones will be dashed into pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. This is some of the tension that people begin to have when they're reading the Old Testament. And they're saying to themselves, what exactly is going on here? In fact, here's the question I began to ask that I think some people have. How is the one, Jesus, who laid down his life for his enemies, one with the one, God the Father, who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? How is the one, Jesus, who laid down his life for his enemies, one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? It's a a, a tension. It's a question worth asking. It's something worth considering. And so what we are going to do today is I'm going to walk you through different approaches that different people take. And all of the approaches that we're going to look at today, none of them are the approach that I take. But I want to be thorough, and I also want to give them do my best to say, hey, these are approaches that people take. This is how people interpret this because some of you might have those approaches as well. This is one of those things that we might disagree with on and that's okay. This is one of those things that's outside of of what we would call like Christian dogma of these are things that we have to agree on as essentials. This is outside of the essentials. This is interpretation. How are we going to interpret these violent portraits and what exactly is going on here? And so I was asking that question as I was wrestling with this. And then here's the criteria that I was using. I was using the criteria of John chapter 5, verse 39, when Jesus said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus goes on to explain this further in John 5, and then he explains it in Luke chapter 24 as well, after his resurrection, about how all of the scriptures point to him. So my criteria that I've been looking for in all of the approaches is trying to say, okay, and whatever approach it's taken here, how does this approach testify to Jesus? How does this interpretation point to Jesus? Because if all scripture points to Jesus, then we need to find a way to discover how do these, how do these portraits point to him? How does that happen? How do we get to that point? And so I think all of these approaches try to do that in some way, I'll just be honest with you. I think some of these approaches utterly fail in doing that. And I think some of them fall short in doing that based off of my opinion. But once again, some of you are going to disagree with me on this and that's okay. We are going to tackle this difficult topic together though, because we want to say, hey, it's okay to have these conversations. It's okay to ask questions. And I don't want something like the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament to keep you from digging into the scriptures and getting to know Jesus. I don't want that to be a barrier. And so we're going to wrestle with this. We're going to talk about this together. So here's one of the first approaches that people take. And this is the one that I I, I probably don't have a lot of, well, I definitely don't have a lot of respect for. A lot of people will look at the violent portraits in the Old Testament and use it as a blueprint for modern warfare. Um, This has happened throughout history where different groups of people have said, oh, God was violent, so we can, we can go do what we want as a country. We can go do what we want as a nation because, of course, we are the nation that has God on our side, right? I mean, if you look closer throughout history, there are even people who have committed genocide and tried to use the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament to justify that. Said, oh, you know, God did it. So, you know, you know God, God told Israel to go slaughter people, so we're going to go slaughter people, you know, because, of course, we're the ones that have God on our side. There are people who've tried to do that. And I just don't think that that's an appropriate reading of the scriptures, to be honest with you. 
Israel was a nation that was chosen by God, and ever since that point in time, there has not been another nation that has had that same responsibility or that same vocation. So whenever a nation tries to place themselves in Israel's role, I just think that's a mishandling of the scriptures. There are even people in modern times who've tried to do that with the United States as well. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking into war practices or war strategies. I know nothing about that. And we have veterans at New Story, and we thank you for your service. And whenever our, our people who are, who are in the service are making their decisions, I trust them to make wise decisions. But when pastors or scholars try to justify actions of the United States through the lens of Israel, I just think that that's a way of misusing the scriptures. So for example, growing up, I had a spiritual leader say to me, oh, of course the United States can do whatever we want in bombing people or killing other people because Israel went and slaughtered people. That's what a spiritual leader told me when I was a teenager. As I grew older, I was like, wait, since when is the United States Israel? We are not Israel. And for those of you who might say, oh, that's just extremists who say that kind of thing. Well, in the early 2000s, when Pastor John MacArthur was on CNN and he was asked about if the United States should invade Iraq, look at what he said. Yes, maybe we need to go back to the Bible and see what the Bible actually says. God told the children of Israel to go into the land and destroy the Canaanites. I just don't think it's a helpful hermeneutic or interpretation of Scripture to equate the United States with Israel. I don't think it's because there's so many reasons why that's a bad idea. But whose version are we t- of Israel are we talking about? How come you would use that religion but not another? You start opening up a door for so many issues. I just don't think it's appropriate. And I think it's a mishandling of the scriptures to say, oh, we should use this as a blueprint for modern warfare. That's not why the story is there. Here's, here's another approach. It's the God does what God wants approach. God does what God wants. God does what God wants. God is God. He's holy. He's above all else. God does what God wants. And this approach would come from a passage like Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9. I'll let you write that down if you're taking notes. We actually, we encourage note-taking here. So, you know, bring, bring something to take notes with, or you can take notes on your phone. Just please don't be texting while I'm talking. I mean, I'm not your teacher, but anyway. So, but like, you know, take the, but God does what God wants. This would come from Isaiah 55, 9, or a verse like this one. When God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So you know what? Here, here's what we understand. God, God can do what he wants because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I would say that there are three versions of this approach. One version of this approach is, from my perspective, a highly commendable version. You're, you're probably sitting here right now and you're saying to yourself, I understand why people are talking about this, but you know what? I just love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And yeah, you know what? I don't have an answer to everything or I don't fully understand everything, but you know what? I love Jesus and I trust that God can do what God wants and I'm trusting and placing my faith in him. That's a humble, innocent faith where you're saying, hey, I trust God. I'm trusting Jesus. And I believe that that's the kind of faith that Jesus would commend. Where you would say, hey, you know what? I don't have time to wrestle with all these things. I just know that God works things out for his good and I'm following Jesus and I want others to follow Jesus. God does what God wants. I'm trusting in him. That's a humble, commendable approach that I believe Jesus would say, hey, I'm good with that. Another version of this approach of God does what God wants though, the second version, I would say is a bit of a, it's a defensive approach. 
And as soon as somebody questions you, I mean, I know I've been this person before as well, because, you know, you, you put in, you know, as soon as somebody questions your convictions, you get really defensive. You're like, what? And you, you almost start to short circuit a little bit. You're like, you know, you can't, you can't, what? And, and somebody would say, you can't question that. You can't question, you know what? No, no. And like, and you're okay with certain questions, but if it's a question that you don't want to talk about, you just get really defensive. You might almost start name calling people who would, how dare they ask that? They, they just want to cause problems. They just want to stir the pot. They just want to do this. And then you start saying things like, you know, God does what God wants. And you know what? The Bible says that that settles it. And you just start saying these things and you get really harsh and you get really defensive. These people are just trying to do this. So they're just trying to do that. You start assigning motives to people who ask questions, even though you've never even talked to them to find out what their motives are. You're saying God does what God wants, but you're really clinging to something. You have this really defensive approach. And here would be my pushback for the defensive approach. First of all, I don't know if it really reflects the, the heart of Jesus and being grace-filled and understanding. But also, here's another, here's another example. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that you should stone rebellious children. The person who's really defensive, I can guarantee you, they are not stoning their rebellious children. If you are, I will call CPS when I find out. But, but you don't do that. Why? Because you recognize that a passage like that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it requires interpretation. It requires a second look. It requires understanding, hey, we're under a new covenant or dispensation, wherever you fall on that. And you're saying, hey, this requires another look. That's why we don't do that anymore. And so for those who are in the defensive position, my question for you would be this. How come it's okay to question some things in your mind, but not other things? How come you realize that some things we need to look at through the lens of interpretation, but other things you just get really closed-fisted? And you say, oh, no, no, no. That would just be my question for the defensive position. And then the, the third approach in the God does what God wants approach, and I probably could have created a whole category for this one, but I didn't, um, mostly for time's sake. But there are people in our church who hold this third view, people who I highly respect, people who once I give this view, they would say, I could explain it much better than you. And you probably could, because most of the time we are better at explaining our own views than, than we are other people's views. But this other approach would be like a, a determinist or maybe some would call almost an, a Calvinist approach. They would say, God determines all things, no matter what happens. God allowed it to happen. Actually, at times, God wanted it to happen. And out of his love, he caused it to happen because God is good with this. Even the grossest and gruesome of things, God caused it to happen through his divine sovereign hand. He wanted it to happen. He made it happen. And it testifies to his love. It's this deterministic, God is sovereign, Calvinist view. And there are people who hold this view who I, who I, who I respect. I don't agree with them, but I respect them. Uh, a really popular person who would hold this view would be John Piper. He actually said this when questioned about God slaughtering women and children. He said, it's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. Now, I find this troubling because I don't, I don't know how it would please God for, for women and children to die. It's, it's something I find a little bit troubling, specifically when I look at the scriptures. But somebody who holds this view would say, they would have a way of, of wrapping that up and, and showing you that. But either way, the God does what God wants approach, there are, I would say, a few different versions of that. There's the humble approach, there's the defensive approach, and there's the deterministic Calvinist approach. And I would just say with all of those, I couldn't necessarily find how do these approaches ultimately, specifically the second two, two and three, how do they point to Jesus or how do they reconcile the one who laid down his life for his enemies with the one who told Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? So, so there's that. 
Then there's, there's this next approach. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but I just wanted to address it to say that I'm aware of it. This one's called the dismissal theory. And the dismissal theory became really popular in the second century from a guy named Marcion. And you're saying, okay, we don't need to go. Why are we going to the second century right now? Can we just, what's going on? Okay, so Marcion, Marcion was, was out there. He believed that the Old Testament was inspired by a wicked deity. So he just dismissed the Old Testament. And then he's like, I'm good with the new. I'm just going to dismiss the old. I don't know anybody today who has a Marcionite view that uh, uh, Old Testament was inspired by a wicked deity. I'm sure that there are people out there who have that view. I'm just not aware of it. But I do know of pastors and scholars who I would say have maybe like an evolved Marcion view. And the evolved Marcion view would be uh, saying like, oh, all those pictures in the Old Testament you know, they're metaphorical or they didn't really happen or, you know, it was just perception. And I, I've read those, I've read those guys or I've listened to some of them and, and I, and, and I kind of get what they're trying to do, but I just, I can't hold to that approach for a few reasons. One, I believe that the scriptures are God breathed and I believe that those, these things happened. Secondly, if you were to say, oh, these are metaphorical, how do you start deciding which ones are metaphorical and which ones are not metaphorical? How do you, what's, what's, what, you know, where does that come in? If you say, oh, all of the, all of the violent portraits are metaphorical, well, then you don't have much Old Testament left to work with. And then also, Jesus, Paul, and many other, and other authors in the New Testament referenced some of these stories and used them and found value in them. So to just sweep them under the rug and say, oh, they're metaphor, I, 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 I just, I, I couldn't, I, yeah, anyways, it just, it didn't work for me. Uh, but anyway, so the dismissal approach, there's that approach. This next one, this next one is another one that I have a lot of respect for. These next two actually are the two that I almost went with. This next one, I have a lot of respect for. And there are people in our church who are going to have this one. This is the apologetics approach. So if you're saying to yourself, who's, what's an apologetics? What is that? An apologist is somebody who defends the Christian faith. An apologist is someone who, who comes up with, who works with science and history and difficult concepts like this one and philosophy and says, hey, I'm going to come up with ways to wrestle with this. This is the apologist approach. And the apologist will, will look at different instances of God's violence in the Old Testament and say, hey, how can we figure this out? So they'll say things like, oh, oh, you know, God, God telling them to go kill the Canaanites. Oh, the Canaanites, they were just so wicked. The Canaanites, were, they would sacrifice children, which is true. The Canaanites were really wicked but contending that they were any more wicked than other nations, I would say there's, there's a little bit of something to argue there. Also, that is one incident out of many. An apologist will um, maybe look at the passage like in Numbers when, it said, when Moses said, oh yeah, take the virgins for yourself. And they'll say, oh see, they were protecting the virgins. But I think that's, that's a little bit arguable as well. Like what exactly were they going into? But also the, the other point would be, why did they kill the women and children still, like in the men, like what, you know, you, you know, it, I get what you're trying to do there, but it, to me, when I was reading a lot of the apologists, they had some good reasoning for some of the stories, but in other stories, it almost felt like they were trying to take something really ugly and place a bow on it. Oh, here, here's how this could look nice. I was like, ah, oh, it still kind of looks a little funky. Um, and I read a book by Paul Copen called Is God a Moral Monster? If you were wrestling with this topic, I would recommend the book. It was a great read. I just didn't go everywhere that he went. I, I didn't think I didn't agree with all of his uh, 
conclusions. He said this in the end of his book. He said, while we may stumble or be troubled when reading certain Old Testament texts, we can put them in proper perspective by looking in the right places. And that to me is, that summarizes the approach of the apologist. It was always, let's see what we can do to put this in the right place. Let's see what we can do to kind of spin this or give this a spin to make it sound better than what it is. And it's just ugly. It's ugly. So what exactly is going on here? And I just felt the apologist approach while it's great, and there are many people, there are some people in our church who are going to hold this view, and I respect that. I just felt, from my perspective, that it was coming short of showing how do these scriptures testify to who Jesus is, the one who gave his life for his enemies so that they could have life. And this next approach, I almost went with this one as well, the phases approach. Some of you are like, I'm enjoying this. Some of you are like, okay, I, I, I got to come to church another week because you're going to be going home and watching Stephen Furtick or something, but that's okay. Anyway, so the phases approach. The phases approach. This is, this is the approach where, um, this is from Tremper Longman. And what I really love about the phases approach is he tries to take this issue of the violence in the Old Testament and he tries to show how it fits into the entire story of Scripture. For me, when I'm wrestling with a difficult topic, I really like to see, hey, how does this fit into the entire story of Scripture? Instead of dealing with isolated incidents, so here's what you do with that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and it's kind of like put, pick and put. and think. I like to see how does this fit into the entire story that God is telling in the Scriptures. And Longman tries to do that, and I really appreciate it. Um, he, here's how the phases approach works. He said, phase one, what we see is that God fights the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. Phase two, Israel rebels against God, so God fights Israel. He places them in Babylonian captivity. Phase three, while they're in captivity, what happens? God will come and fight Israel's oppressors. So there are three phases here. God fights the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. God fights Israel. God will come and fight Israel's oppressors. Then he goes into phase four and five. Phase four goes into Jesus fights spiritual powers and authorities. In phase five, Jesus wins the battle. So it gives this progression of here's how this is doing. And he even alludes to the fact that some of the Old Testament pictures could actually be almost apocalyptic pictures of what is to come in the end of day. So he's trying to bring the entire story of Scripture together, something I really appreciated. I think Longman does a great job. He has a book on Old Testament controversies that if you're wrestling with this, once again, I would recommend it. And to be honest with you, with Paul Copen, the apologetics approach, and Tremper Longman, this approach, if I were to be sitting here on this stage with them, they would probably both wipe the floor with me. <laughs> they are both, both much smarter individuals than I am. But I just didn't, once again, I was wrestling with this, and I, I said, I, I don't really know phases one through three specifically. How does this testify to Jesus, the one who laid down his life for his enemies. And so I was left with this question, how is the one who laid down his life for his enemies, one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? Because we believe that they're one. We know that they're one because Jesus said that, and that's what we as Christ followers believe. But how do we reconcile this tension some of you may have heard some of the approaches I gave today and said, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I land. Great, you've reconciled it. Some of you are sitting there and you're saying, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm still kind of stuck here. Some of you are saying, I never questioned this before, and now, Scott, you have me questioning it, and I really wish you wouldn't have done that. I came here to get my faith built up and not ask a bunch of questions. That's okay. I mean, I'm sorry about that. Maybe it's irresponsible. But anyway, so, so you get these questions. How do we reconcile this question? 
And some of you are sitting here and you're like itching in your seat right now because you're saying, Scott, you missed something. You missed something. Maybe you're not saying this, but I think I imagine somebody out there, maybe you're watching, maybe you're saying, Scott, you missed something huge. There's a problem with your question. And here's the problem with your question, Scott. And it's an approach that some people take. And once again, it's an approach that I don't hold to because that's all I'm doing this week. And then we'll say, Scott, Scott, here's what you're missing. Here's what you're missing. Here's what you're missing. Jesus was violent. They will say, this is the approach that you're missing, Scott, that Jesus was violent approach. Some of you are like, yeah, that's right, right? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus was violent a couple times. Yeah, didn't, yeah, you know? And this, is, this is the approach that some people, this is how some people reconcile it. I think, this, I think that this view, once again, I, I know I'm being really picky and, I, and I'm, you know, I, 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 was, I was reading, I, I'll be honest with you, I did more reading for this series than I did any other series. I started reading for this series and then I said, I can't, oh my gosh, and my mind was going crazy. And so then I was thankfully with a pastor uh, named Kent Carlson in Chicago. He said, did you try this approach? And that's where our approach is going to come for next week. And I was like, Kent, you're the man. So I owe Kent a big thank you. But anyways, the Jesus is violent approach. And the people who say Jesus is violent, they'll immediately go to when Jesus flipped out in the temple. When he had this, he got really mad. We read this in all the gospels. We get a really detailed version of it in John 2. Here's what happened. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So Jesus is clearly upset here. He's clearly frustrated. Uh, He's upset because the place that was supposed to be the place where people could come and experience God had now been turned into a place of corruption where people were taking advantage of other people. He's upset. He's frustrated. Says he even put a whip together because a whip is what you would use to gather animals. But if you look closely at the passage, he didn't hit anybody with the whip. No violence occurred in this passage. Nobody, no, no blood was shed. Nobody was killed. It doesn't really reconcile with some of those passages that we read earlier. He drove the animals out, which was a normal way of driving. He flipped some tables. He was frustrated. He was upset. But once again, in fact, time and time again, we see Jesus encouraging an approach that is nonviolent. Time and time again, we see Jesus encouraging approach where he said, hey, you should forgive somebody 70 times, seven times. You should forgive them limitlessly. And when his disciples wanted to use violence, he discouraged them from doing so. Look at this, what happened when a, when a town rejected him in Luke chapter nine. When his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Say, hey, you might have the power to do this. You might be able to destroy these people, but you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. I did not come to take lives. I came to give life. So he rebukes them for that. There's another incident where Peter has a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, great job, Peter. Thank you for doing that. Look at what happens. And Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. And then what did Jesus end up doing? He ended up healing the man's ear. He put it back. 
Jesus in Matthew 5.44 said to love your enemies. Jesus went out of his way and gave his life for the sake of his enemies. So how do we reconcile this? How do we bring this all together? What exactly is going on here? Once again, like I said, some of you might take some of the approaches, but I believe that for us to get closer to this, we've dug ourselves into the hole. How are we going to get out of this next week? And I believe that the answer is found in the cross. That when we look closely at the cross of Jesus Christ, we will begin to see the answer and we'll be able to bring this together. But for you to hear about how that happens and how we're going to do that and how we bring this all together, you are going to have to come back next week for us to answer the question, how is the one who gave his life for his enemies one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? How do we bring all of that together? If you would, please bow your heads and join me for prayer in this moment. Jesus, we thank you that you were close to us. And that when we come to difficult topics like this one, that you're not scared of these topics, you're not scared of these subjects, but I actually believe that you would delight in the fact that we would talk about something like this. Because as Paul writes to Timothy, you, God, desire for all people to be saved. And since that is the desire of your heart, we believe as a church that we have a responsibility to confront and to break down any walls that might be keeping people from drawing closer to you. And as we confront these walls, as we confront these things that people wrestle with, as we confront these concepts and ideas, I pray that you, Jesus, would make your presence so clear to us, that we would see that you are the one who rescues us. You are the one who rescues us from death and offers to us the gift of an everlasting life in you. And I pray, Jesus, that as we move forward together, that we would discover how you are the one who is one with the Father, who is one with the Spirit. And the Father has an outpouring of love for us. And you, Jesus, are a demonstration of the Father's love for us. And that by the power of your Spirit, we would all walk into the new life that you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the opportunity to have conversations like this. May we just continue to draw closer to you and seek you above all else.